Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. A couple of years ago, when I was serving as the CFO of a large engineering procurement and construction company, I was putting in a lot of miles running in the early morning. And that's when I came across Mihir Desai's book, The Wisdom of Finance. Now I've read a lot of business books, and in fact, I'm that nerd on the beach during vacation reading about credit default swaps and financial markets with a highlighter. My wife loves to tease me about this. What struck me though about Mahir's book was the way he related personal events to financial occurrences. For example, Mahir creatively explains how the principles of finance also provide answers to critical questions in our lives. Bankruptcy teaches us how to react to failure. The lessons of mergers apply to marriages, and the capital asset pricing model demonstrates the true value of relationships. Tying humanity to finance is not only brilliant, but also a crucial cause to boost financial literacy across all age groups and restore confidence in the financial markets and institutions that enhance the lives of so many people. Mihir Desai is an award-winning professor of finance at Harvard Business School and a professor of law at the Harvard Law School. His areas of expertise include international finance, corporate finance, and tax policy, and his academic publications have appeared in leading journals. Also, his opinion pieces have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Harvard Business Review, and he's testified several times before congressional bodies. Mihir's professional experiences also include working on Wall Street at CS First Boston, at McKinsey and & Company, and advising a number of firms in governmental organizations. His humility makes him an exceptional leader, and his curiosity makes him an innovative thinker in the world of business. What were you like growing up? And do you recall any pivotal moments in your upbringing that define your life's course? Sure. So uh, that's a great question. You know, so I was uh, born in India and raised in Hong Kong, but we came to the U.S. when I was eight. So I think that really defined my childhood and really defined who I am, which is somebody who had to kind of figure out a way to learn a new landscape and adapt that landscape and uh, try to find a new way to thrive. Now, of course, I had all the advantages of a very loving home and uh, a receptive community, but I think that kind of immigrant experience really defined who I am and the way I think about the world. I was always pretty inward and pretty introverted and not somebody who was out there a lot. I was quiet and kind of insular in some ways. And then 
what would almost always inevitably happen is I would kind of grow. So the beginning of high school was terrible, but the end of high school was great. The beginning of college was terrible, but the end of college was great. The beginning of graduate school was terrible. The end of graduate school was great. So I am just a chronic slow starter. And I think I like to stack the deck against me. You know, like I love the idea of coming out of a hole and like, you know, getting victory from the jaws of defeat. And I think that narrative has just repeated itself like all the time in my life. You know, very kind of average kid in many, many ways and really internally focused a little bit, not so externally focused. And then, you know, somebody who puts obstacles in front of themselves in a way and then likes to conquer them. That's kind of been the narrative that I've kind of told myself all through my life. So when you're quiet like that, did you get a lot of slack from other people as far as, you know, why are you the quiet guy or? Yeah. Well, so, it's, you know, again, I think I always would start on the periphery, right? So at the beginning of every experience, I've been on the periphery because I'm quiet. And then I am just this late starter. And I never fortunately got serious slack for it other than for my, maybe my older brother. But in a way, it made it easier because I think people were curious about me as being this kind of peripheral figure. Um, I was never nasty to anybody. And then I would kind of slowly find my way to flourish. And I think that was kind of something that I like to do and I still like to do. I, I don't like to be the first person to talk in a room. I'd much rather talk to other people about their lives than talk about my own life. I just am naturally somebody like that. So I don't think I'm uh, somebody who is you know, aloof, but I certainly don't put myself forward in many ways until time passes. And then I find myself projecting myself a little bit more into the mainstream. That's been kind of the narrative always. Now, moving around from India to Hong Kong to the United States, do you see that as an advantage or disadvantage? I mean, that must have been difficult moving around a lot when you're young, especially internationally. Yeah, I think it's a huge advantage. In fact, I worry with my own children that <laughs> they haven't had an experience like that. And again, of course, I had all the advantages of a loving home and wonderful parents. You know, if you don't have that, moving around is a much more complicated proposition, I think. But in the context in which I was in, it was fantastic for two reasons. You know, one, you know, my father felt strongly about coming to this country and his desire to move made this country my home. And I'm forever grateful for that. That's perhaps the most important effect of that <laughs> set of journeys, which is I got to grow up in this country and avail myself of educational opportunities and other opportunities that are just spectacular. And then second, it did lead to this sense of adaptability and also a little bit of a global mindset, which is I think about the world naturally. I don't necessarily think about countries. I kind of have an outlook, especially a place like Hong Kong breeds, at least the way it was back then, um, breeds a cosmopolitanism that I think is really fantastic. And then the third thing I guess I would say is that, you know, I, I really believe that you know, the United States and India are two of the greatest, you know, countries out there. And to be attached to both of them in a meaningful way is like the greatest thing in the world. To have two places that I feel at home, obviously, I don't feel at home in India as I do in the United States, having, you know, lived here and now um, resided here. But I still think it's wonderful to have other places you can call home. When I'm in Hong Kong, my heart beats a little faster. And when I'm in Bombay, my heart beats even faster. And that's a great feeling to have multiple homes in the world. Yeah. And I, and I think that diversity is so valuable. You know, part of my MBA program, I was able to travel to multiple countries and spend about two weeks in each of them. So we were in India for two weeks. We were in China for two weeks. We were in Germany and in um, Chile. So it was a, a great opportunity to not just learn business and learn strategy, but also, you know, open my eyes to the rest of the world and how these different cultures behaved and to understand that there's more than one way to do things in the world. And that was so valuable for me in my leadership. 
Well, I think that last phrase you used is so important, which is kind of this intellectual ability to see that there's more than one way, right? Uh, and to just kind of free yourself from dogma. And like, there's one way to do things, right? And that's not just something about countries or cultures. That's about problem solving. And that's about everything. And just to have that at a young age, I, as I said, I really wish my children had it. We've provided them with like no moving experiences. Now we travel, which is great, but um, it is different when you have to kind of show up in a fourth grade classroom and ingratiate yourself with <laughs> a whole different, you know, set of kids. I did the same thing in my summer, actually, in high school, I went to Japan and it was just such a good experience to learn how to ingratiate yourself with a population with very limited language skills. Like it just teaches you a resilience and it teaches you, I think, sociability in an interesting way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So you go on and you earned your degree, your bachelor's degree in history and economics from Brown University. And so my question is, how did this time period shape your life? And what were some of the key learnings that emerged from studying these two topics? Yeah, so history it was really important to my intellectual development and my personal development. And I think it goes a little bit to the conversation we just had, which is first, history is all about understanding that the world is complex and any singular causal explanation of any historical fact is likely to be wrong. It's multi-causal and yeah. it's messy and you have to really puzzle through those things. So it kind of disabuses you of any simplistic ideas about the way the world works right? That, you know, you just do this and something comes out. No, it, it's much more complicated than that. And I think history is just wonderful for teaching that. The second thing that it gave me was, and I'm just a huge believer in this, Steve, which is I'm a huge believer in writing and the power of writing. So when you're a history major, you write because like you have to write a lot because that's what you do as a history major. And I really thought that shaped me in an important way. Because writing is not just about writing. It's about the way you argue. It's about the way you think. And it's about the way you kind of also market an idea. It's about so many important things. So it really emphasized writing to me. And I think as a consequence, it had all these spillover effects, which is when you're forced to write that much about messy topics, you get better at analyzing messy issues. You get better at presenting your views. You get better at convincing other people. So I think substantively history was important because it taught me to think about the world in a complicated way. But maybe even more important was it made me write and write a lot. And that has just, I think, persisted to today. I worry a lot that we don't emphasize writing enough in, in our curricula because it is so important to the way we think and convince others. And that had a lasting influence on me. Brown, more generally, was just a great place because they have what's called an open curriculum and you get to really choose whatever you want and there are no really required things. And that also forced choice onto me and you have to be thoughtful about your choices. And I thought that was also a big kind of byproduct of that time, like the entrepreneurial mindset of you have to make your own set of decisions here. <laughs> no one's going to make decisions for you. And I thought that was also really, really an important legacy of that time in my life. So what kind of student were you? Were you a good student? Were there certain topics that really interested you? Or did you like to go out and have a little bit of fun and be crazy too? Well, you know, so it was this classic pattern, which is the first year was a bit of a disaster. And I was really put myself behind eight ball. And I, yeah, I was a little bit uh, out of control. And then things came together and I became more serious. I didn't stop enjoying myself. I had a great set of friends and we had a wonderful time. But it was, it's always been that pattern. The first year is a little bit of a disaster. In that case, it was very social and super fun, but not great academically. And then over time, uh, by my senior year, 
things came together and I was loving it. And I was loving the social aspect and I was loving the academic aspect and I had figured out how to make it work. So yeah, by the time it was over, I think I was more in control, but that first year was, it was a bit of a blur. Were there particular topics that you really excelled in? Like you said, you did a lot of writing. Did that come naturally to you? It was, um, you know, I really liked it. And I actually remember very well taking a class and being involved in what's called a writing fellows program where we helped other people with their writing. And we actually studied the theory of writing. And I just thought my mind was just blown open by that. I just thought it was so interesting to think about rhetoric, how rhetoric works. And the theory of it was just mind blowing. So I loved that. I loved history. I liked economics, but the passion for economics really came later. Um, When I was an undergraduate, it was really about exposition of ideas and studying ideas, all kinds of ideas. Later, I was I got more and more deeply interested in the specific ideas of economics, which is was also really important at that time. But in college, I was much more like all over the place, just exploring. No, that's great. Uh, so then you go on and you earn your PhD in political economy from Harvard. No small feat there. Uh, so congratulations. And um, what was the motivation behind studying this topic and, and how did it transform you as a person? Well, you know, so I had worked for a couple of years on Wall Street and then I'd done my MBA and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, which is I was thinking about going back to banking or going back to consulting. And I realized two things. Um, one is I realized I really wanted a way to think about the world. And I felt like I didn't have a way to think about the world, you know, like an intellectual framework for thinking about the world. And I was really fortunate. I sat in on a graduate seminar, which is kind of a crazy thing to do as an MBA student. But I sat, sat in on a graduate seminar in economics and it just changed my whole life because I immediately saw a way to think about the world. And I wanted that so badly, like I wanted an intellectual framework. And that's when I really fell in love with economics and fell in love with research of economics and teaching economics and studying it. And just, I loved it all. And that happened very accidentally, but it satisfied a craving for me about ideas, about an intellectual framework. And it satisfied a craving for me because it has wonderful theory. It's like an elegant set of ideas, but it also has like elegant uh, empirical work. Like, you know, there's data. (laughs) Um, And then finally, it has all this policy relevance because, you know, it matters in the world. So a lot of academia doesn't satisfy me as much because they don't have that kind of combination of beautiful theory, beautiful data, and beautiful relevance. And economics has all that. And that to me was just super exciting. And I, once I fell into it, I was really fortunate to have a couple of advisors who really took care of me. And that really shaped me in terms of giving me that way to think about the world which I I still have till today. So did you pursue your PhD with the intent to teach or did you have other motivations at the time? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I just had no (laughs) idea. So I kind of, um, the way I did it was I completely stumbled. So I'd done my MBA and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I went to India for a year, goofed around and traveled around the country. And then I got into the PhD program and I, I literally thought to myself, what's the worst that can happen? which is I can spend a year and I'll take the basic, you know, graduate level economics classes. What's the worst that can happen? I can learn to learn a ton and then I'll just go back and do the other things I could go do. And then after that first year, I was like, what's, I'll do another year. What's the worst that can happen? I'll, you know, basically learn a bunch of in-depth stuff about corporate finance and public economics. And then after that, I thought to myself, what's the worst that can happen? I'll write it. I'll try to write a dissertation. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back and do the other stuff I was planning on doing. So I don't come from a family of professors. I don't come from a place like that. So it was never something that I thought to myself, I want to go do. Having said that, I will say that during my MBA and during my PhD program, I saw what professors were doing. And I was like, that's cool. And that made me want to learn more. So it was never so purposeful, Steve, where I was like, I'm going to do this so I can become a professor. 
But it was clear that I had professors, especially in my business school time, where I was like, what they are doing is cool. And then I learned, first off, that teaching is only a small part of what you do. You, you research is the bigger chunk. And then I learned about research and I was like, that's cool too. And then things kind of came together. That's interesting. And it's interesting how our lives kind of weave in and out. And sometimes things that we do aren't necessarily purposeful, but they, they take us down some interesting paths. Let's switch gears here. And I want to talk about your book here for a minute. Uh, so when I was serving as a CFO, I was working at this company, a lot of stress uh, was just plaguing me. And, and one of the ways to work off the stress was to go out and run. And I'm that nerdy type who listens to audiobooks and, and uh, biographies when I'm running. My friends think I'm crazy. Um, but so I'm looking for a, a book on Audible and I, I just searched uh, finance and up pops this book and it's called The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in a World of Risk and Return. And to be completely honest, when I, when I first came across the, the title, I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Discovering this world of humanity and like, what, 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 how does that tie into finance? So I started listening to it. And what I loved about the book was just this idea of like humanizing finance and sharing these like economic concepts that, that you lay out so simply and through this moral lens. So I want to hear more about what inspired you to write the book. And are you glad that you did it? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah, you know, it was it was again kind of accidental. Like, you know, I, I kind of fell into it. So I was asked to do one of these kind of last lecture talks for graduating students. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And I was going to do, this was back in 15, 2015, 16. And I thought I would give a talk about, I had a whole set of slides. It was called the Slow Motion LBO of America. And it was about buybacks and, you know, all this kind of jazz. And I was told, me here, this is supposed to be like a last lecture thing. You're supposed to be like imparting wisdom, like the slow motion LBO of America is not going to work. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. I understand. And so I was supposed to, you know, literally the person who said to me, like, you know, it's supposed to be like about wisdom and about your life. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I came up with a title, which was the wisdom of finance. I didn't even know what it meant, but I knew that I was supposed to be talking about wisdom and I know it had to do with finance because I know something about finance. And I was like, the wisdom of finance, that's what I'll talk about. And I, I just uh, submitted the title and then I had the great fortune of just having a great group of students who showed up. And as I was preparing for it, I just realized, and like you, I'm sure know, Steve, because you know finance so well, which is these things in finance that we talk about, like leverage or optionality, they're not just ideas in finance, they're ideas in life, right? And we in finance talk to each other like this, you know, like yeah. I want some more optionality, you know. I'm not getting enough leverage, you know, <laughs> like in my, you know, and we don't mean it financially. We mean like, I need some more help. I need to kind of outsource things. I need to like, I need more choices in my life, you know, whatever it is. And so I just really started to map that kind of that language of finance to these much broader considerations. And I gave the talk and it was just spectacular in the sense that people really resonated with it and they were so encouraging. And, you know, I got, I got several emails afterwards, including one from a guy who I'll never forget. He was like, you have to turn this into a book. And 
that's how it started. So totally serendipitous. I actually thought you could just kind of like write down your talk and publish it. <laughs> and then I realized it was a little more complicated than that. Um, and I'm really glad I did because I didn't want to just write down the talk because the talk works as a talk, but it may not work as a book, right? Then I just began this journey. And I'm a traditional academic economist at the time. I've never written books and, you know, writing academic papers and my whole style of writing. When you spend 15 years doing that, you become, you write a certain way, right? Like, sure. you know, hypothesis, test, you know, <laughs> result. And this is like a loosey-goosey book that's like all over the place with history and literature and different kinds of things. The most important thing I did was I really did two things. I reached out to an author who I really respect and I kind of cold emailed him. And I said, would you have lunch with me to talk about this idea? And he said, yes. And we had like three, five hour lunches where he kind of reminded me about the power of stories. So rather than talk about this in the way we usually talk about it, like to use stories. So every chapter in the book basically has a story that begins it from some crazy place. So like risk and insurance, it's like the Maltese Falcon or options and diversification, it's Jane Austen. So using stories as opposed to the normal way we talk in finance, like, look, here's the numbers, here's the diagram, here's the way it works. And he reminded me that like the vast majority of people in the world don't think like that. Like they need a story. Like that's the way their mind works. That's the way your mind works. And so that was such a revelation to me because I was like, okay, I'm going to do this all with stories. And then the book kind of came out of that effort, not just the mapping, but infusing it with lots and lots of stories from history and literature and art as a way to do it. So it's been just been a spectacular experience. It was a challenging thing to do. It was hard for me to do because it was a different way of writing and different kind of risks to take. And I've never, never been happier about a decision you know, that I made, uh, as weird as it was to kind of do something that was kind of so different from ac traditional academic work. Yeah. And in the way that you laid it out, like you said, I mean, it is through stories, there weren't a bunch of diagrams and charts. It's not like you had a, a DCF model in the middle of the book. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's really unique and I really like that. And as listening to another interview that you had with, with somebody and you're talking about when the publishers came to you and said, you know, who's the audience here? Like, well, it's, Finance people and non-finance people. Yeah. Well, you got to choose. It can't be everybody, right? Have you gotten any feedback from non-finance people and how does it resonate with them? And for somebody who thinks numbers are scary, is, is it something that created a little bit of interest with them? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. So I think I really resisted, Steve, like this idea, like it's for this population and not for that population because I really wanted to write to everybody. And the interesting thing has been, I think the non-finance people, I think really gravitate towards it because it opens up this mysterious world to them. And as you know, many people in finance, you know, try to keep the world cloaked in mystery because it's their source of power. And so for those people, I think it's just been great as a way into the world of finance. And then for people in finance, it kind of divides. So for some people who are, and you know, there are some people in finance like this, who they are just so kind of down the middle and they are so deep in finance, they don't really want to think broadly, right? They, they love what they do, classic kind of trader mentality. I don't think they get the book because it's just too foreign to them to think about history and literature as a way to understand finance. But the people in finance who like to connect dots and like to kind of see the world in a very multi kind of varied way, they've just really loved the book. And I think it's been gratifying because people who really know finance like you can still find something in there that makes them just think about the world differently. So I think, except for the person who really thinks finance is like kind of narrow and spreadsheety and, you know, that's what they do. I think people of different types have really liked it, especially folks who like to connect dots. You know, people who are kind of parallel thinkers, lateral thinkers, they're the ones who find, I think, the most out of the book. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And you know, one of the parts that really stuck with me in the book is when you're talking about, hey, finance is all about creating value. But if we translate that into our own personal lives, you know, we can ask the question to ourselves, am I creating value in the world? So I'm wondering, you know, as I'm hearing your background, you know, you, you've lived in multiple countries, you come here, you go to Brown, you go to Harvard, you've worked at, you know, on Wall Street at McKinsey, and you've had all these great experiences in teaching at Harvard. Have you ever struggled at a point in your life where you asked yourself, am I fulfilling my life's purpose? Am I really creating value out there? Or do you feel like your life has always been very sequential and linear and you just keep adding value to the world as you go along? Yeah. So I, you know, yeah, there, you know, when, with my children, we often talk about these, you know, that they're ducks, which is they look placid and calm on the surface, but beneath they're just moving their legs just like crazy, but you can't see anything. Right. And I think there's been a lot of struggle in my life to feel like I am doing the thing I was supposed to be doing. And I think up until the last five years, maybe the last three years, I've struggled with that a lot. But I think the book and the, the other book that came out and other things I'm doing now have made me feel for the first time like I am closer to doing the thing I should be doing. There's a long time, like with everyone, I think, where you just doubt yourself and you doubt whether you're doing the right thing. And I think a lot of my early 40s was spent like thinking about that problem unproductively. But I, I feel today more confident about that than I've ever felt before. Now I'm still upset with myself or angry with myself about how much I realize what I can do. Like I, I feel like I'm underperforming in many, many ways, but I don't doubt myself as much as I used to with regards to have I figured out how to add value in the world to the best of my ability. Yeah. Not that I'm saying it's great or anything like that. I'm just saying that to the, to the degree that I have something, am I trying to get it out in the world in the best way? And the books and my teaching and the writing and the research, I feel like, you know, I think it's the, I'm trying as hard as I can. I wish I could do more. I wish the obstacles I place in front of myself, you know, to go back to our previous conversation, weren't always there. But that's just part of my, you know, modus operandi. Well, and I think that's a common feeling, you know, when I'm talking to CFOs and other executives, you know, oftentimes, you know, especially the CFOs, they feel like in their position, you know, here they are, they're producing financial statements, they're, you know, they're doing the compliance work, but they don't necessarily feel like they're adding value, you know, or they're not fulfilling their full potential in this role. And that's why I'm so passionate about this idea of like strategic financial leadership, because I think the, the finance leader, you know, is in a great position to add value to the organization because they touch so many parts of the business. They're so in, into so many functions. So the question I have for you is, when you hear the phrase strategic financial leadership, what do you think of and, and how do you see the, the future of finance changing? So I think it's a great question. And I think first, it's worthwhile just kind of going back in time a little bit for perspective, which is I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, CFOs were more in a kind of control function and a compliance function. And that was fine. That was the way the world worked. But what we've noticed in the last 20 to 30 years is that the strategic importance of CFOs has just risen more and more. And it's, I think, precisely for the reason you say, which is they have their hands in so many parts of the business, which is a way of saying, first, they know the data. So they, they actually understand the data. That's incredibly valuable, more and more so. Second, 
you know, for better or worse, finance is more important in the world, which is just a way of saying investors are more important in the world and they kind of dominate the economy. So if you are on the front lines of interacting with those people, you are naturally more important than you would have been otherwise. And that has led to them being more and more strategic. So part of that phrase of strategic financial leadership is just a recognition of the fact that finance, because it is so data-driven, finance, because it is so much on the interface between investors and the company. And finally, because they develop and employ the language that we use to communicate with each other about how we're doing, (laughs) that is just becoming more and more important. And so we see more CFOs migrating to CEO positions. We see more CEOs who have to be literate in finance and need thought partners, not just the compliance function to be fulfilled. And I think that is really exciting and makes the job of CFO much more interesting. I tell my students, you know, they tend to think about the world of finance as, oh, I want to go become a banker or I want to go become a fund manager. And they don't realize that actually, if you want a long life in finance, that's super interesting. The CFO track is actually a great track to like get on and you can become a CFO and a CEO. Now it doesn't, may not have the payoffs that going into some of those other fields might have in the short run, but in the long run way more interesting, way more fun, way more impactful, and can be, you know, ultimately as remunerative as any other path. And I think that's what people don't appreciate. You know, people don't appreciate how much fun it can be, that job can, how much fun that job can be, and how rewarding that path can be relative to a whole bunch of other paths. And, and what do you think is the responsibility of the CEO or a president or a business unit leader to educate themselves from a financial standpoint? You know, what if they just say, hey, look, I'm, I'm not the numbers guy, you know, numbers just aren't my thing. So it's just, you know, you go do the number thing and then just come report back to me. Is, it, is there a responsibility for, for yeah. CEOs and other leaders to know? Well, you put it in terms of responsibility, but I, I mean, I would almost put it as a requirement. So, I mean, I just don't think it's tenable anymore to be like, I'm not, I'm not a numbers guy. So you just go do that and come inform me and you talk when those questions get asked. I don't, I just don't think that's tenable. Meaning I think investors look at that and they're like, no, that does not work for me. (laughs) I think people inside the company look at it and they're like, no, that doesn't work for me. And so all the stakeholders, I just don't think that's a tenable position. So you framed it in terms of responsibility, but I just think it's almost a prerequisite of this to be conversant. Now that doesn't mean you have to be in the weeds. Sure. Quite to the quite to the contrary, actually. If you're in the weeds, you have another problem, <laughs> you know, which is you're spending way too much time on it and you're thinking about it too much. But if you can't, for example, have language of capital allocation be natural to you, if you can't have a pretty intuitive understanding of financial metrics, you know, what thing what will happen when you make a specific decision and how it will flow through to those metrics, I think it's a real problem. So it's not just a responsibility, I think it's now a requirement to have that. And yes, it's important to have a thought partner who you can rely on, who is a CFO, but it's not enough to just have somebody who you kind of turf it to. CEOs who I engage with are deeply conversant in it. They don't want to spend all their time on it because it can lead to some bad behavior if you spend all your time worrying about that stuff, but they're deeply conversant in it. And if they're not, they know they need it because it is just not tenable. If you, even if you came up in marketing or you came up in operations or whatever. And I think the great joy of finance, and I don't know if you feel this way too, which is smart people like that who, who have an appetite for understanding it, once they're disabused of the idea that it's rocket science, they love it. 
because they see the ideas are great and they think it's interesting, but they've just been kind of told for the rest for their whole life that it's like some weird hard thing that you don't really want to get involved. But once they do, they kind of, it kind of turns them on. So it's, it's also, I think, turns out to be a rewarding part of what they end up doing. Well, I, and I think you're absolutely right. And when they understand that story behind the numbers, not just the numbers themselves, but you know, what's the statement of cash flow telling them? What, what does free cash flow mean? And what's the story behind the trends? I think that's when it could be extremely powerful. Yeah, um, I think that's right. So let's, let's talk about financial literacy because I think you and I both share a passion in this area. And when I think about financial literacy being this massive problem, both personally and professionally across the globe, what do you see as the biggest threat if we can't maybe not solve it, but at least mitigate its negative effects? What do you, what do you see as the biggest threat? And then on the opposite side, what's the biggest upside if we could boost our financial IQ, both, both personally and professionally? Yeah, so let's do those separately. I mean, professionally, I think it's just incumbent on any rising and aspirational manager to become financially literate in the way you were just talking about. You know, what is the story behind the numbers? What is the statement of cash flows? What does it mean? Why does it matter? And I think if you don't do that, you get capped out. I, like, I think you just get capped out at some point. And so that's just an enormous loss of talent at the individual level and at the aggregate level because people are convinced for whatever reason that finance is something that you can't do. And that's just horrible. At the personal level, I mean, there, Steve, things are really crazy, right? Meaning the holes in financial literacy are so large and the potential gains are so great. You know, I'm frankly struck by, you know, so much of the personal finance industry is so much garbage. Mm -hmm. And really bad, like really, really bad. And yet there's this enormous demand for it, right? You know, I've been kind of playing with this phrase. I don't know if you like it or not, but there's like this enormous amount of financial quackery that's going on. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, follow that. And yeah. Like, you know, like get rich quick and do this and like, you know, buy some zoom stock and everything, you know, goes well or just, you know, just, it's just, there's some, so much craziness out there. And it capitalizes, that kind of financial quackery capitalizes on people's ignorance, just like medical quackery used to capitalize on people's ignorance. And it capitalizes on this kind of dream that like you can buy a lottery ticket and your world just changes. Right. And there's so many people who peddle it too, right? Like even the asset management industry peddles it because they're like, I'll sell you some financial wisdom over here with this new ETF and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, there's another ETF over here. If you want to feel good about your social consciousness, it's just getting peddled everywhere. And of course, what do we know? We know that it's leading to a lot of bad decisions and it's leading to a lot of things that are like, you know, my buddy told me to invest in this company. So I invested in this company and my buddy's really smart and he did a 10 X on this thing. And so I'm going to go follow him and it ends in tears more often than not. <laughs> and it's so destructive. So, you know, I've been thinking about different ways to address it. Some of it's got to happen system-wide, but I think it's such a huge loss. And, and the final thing I'll just say about that is it's also as citizens, right? You know, meaning there's a personal dimension, there's a professional dimension, and then there's a citizen dimension, which is, look, as long as we don't understand that our choices have consequences <laughs> as citizens, you know, we're going to have a hard time at some point. We, you know, we've been living through this remarkable period where rates are low and life is good and everything seems great. But that unreality will end one day. And if we as citizens don't understand that and think through that, we're going to have problems with the society too. So it's not just personal and professional. I think there's also a societal version of this, which is really important as well. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, I, I think right now, you know, to your, your last point where you said 
you know, these things are going to change, right? The, the low rates, the, the low taxes, these, these other opportunities for growth are, are going to someday change. So when you think about the future, and if somebody's sitting here thinking, wow, we're in this global pandemic, you know, maybe, maybe their job's on the line, maybe cash flow in the business is tight, maybe they feel a little discouraged, you know, what would you say to them as far as like, what are the opportunities that you see moving forward into the future? Well, so there's a kind of a macro version of that and a micro version of that. So I think what most people spend way too much time on is thinking about the macro version of it, you know, which is, oh my God, autonomous vehicles are going to be great. Or, oh my God, you know, fintech is going to be great. And they don't spend enough time on the micro version of that, which is, what am I uniquely good at? This is the question you asked earlier. What can I do with my talents that allows me to create value in the world? And when am I happiest working? Because people tend to think about it just as I want to work for as short as I can and then get a lottery ticket and I'll go do something else. I think that's so the wrong way to think about the world. The right way to think about the world is how do I make work rewarding for me? The answer to that is going to be very differentiated on who you are, what you've been doing, and what you are passionate about. The first step is stop thinking about the macro and think about the micro. Think about yourself. Think about what you're uniquely good at. Think about what you enjoy. Then you can turn to the macro and say, what trends are out there in the world that are maybe interesting that I find really interesting and compelling. But people spend way too much time on the macro as a way of never confronting the really hard micro questions they should be asking themselves because yeah. that actually requires some introspection and some tough love for yourself. Uh, you know, on the macro side, I think there's all kinds of exciting things out there. It's really, it's really just a matter of finding things that are good for you. I mean, I think we're going to see a revolution in the climate area, lots of different ways to think about that. I think there's going to be enormous amounts of interesting things happening in AI that are going to fuel us for many years to come. I'm not a doomsayer by any stretch, and I think the world is going to open up lots of opportunities, especially where these technologies have the potential to really improve our lives. But the harder question is for anybody is to how do I play that? And how do I think about my unique attributes as a way to contribute to those movements that will provide me with a good life for my family, that will provide me with social value, that will provide me with all the other things I want out of life? That's a great point to end on. And I think, you know, during this episode, you've given so many good key takeaways, at least for me, a lot of uh, of good things to go back and implement in my life too. And I know the audience will appreciate it as well. So any, any last words or anything that you want to mention to the audience before we wrap it up? You know, no, I just think um, just to underscore this last point, which is, you know, when I see young people today, they worry about so many different things. And I think the most important thing they should be worried about is how to create a life which is full of learning and meaning. And I want to emphasize learning because when when you stop learning, you kind of start dying. (laughs) And if you can find a life where you're learning, I think it turns out everything else works out okay. No, I, I could definitely, you know, attach onto that idea. I, I love the idea of learning and growth. And, you know, just talking to you, I could start connecting the dots because now understanding, you know, your background in history and how that taught you to think of the world differently and then how that ties over to your book, Wisdom of Finance, it makes much more sense. So thank you so much, Mihir, for being on the podcast today. And for all you uh, listeners out there, if you don't have a copy of the book already, check it out. It's called Wisdom of Finance, one of my favorite books. And you could get that on Amazon or any of the, the other major outlets where you find your books. Thank you so much, Steve. This was a great, great fun. All right. Take care. And uh, until the next episode, thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.